Yo, they said, they said, they said this day would never come. They said our sights were set too high. They said this country was too divided, too disillusioned to ever come together around a common purpose. But on this January night, at this defining moment in history, you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. Welcome to the post-Iowa, what the hell was that, episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. With all the chaos and craziness happening this week, we wanted to kick off the show with that clip from Obama's 2008 Iowa victory speech to remind us of what's possible. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, book editor for Brown is the New White and director of strategic communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. What a week. Hi, Steve. Yes, what a week indeed. And by the way, I really like that title that you just gave it. I just want to let people know. I don't know if that's going to be the official title of the episode, but I do like it. And uh, yes, uh, what a week indeed. I keep calling it, I'm joking and saying like, Iowa Cocopolis Now 2020. (laughs) Uh, it It was something just, I think, just totally not what anybody could have imagined. But I want to just also say that it's just been a crazy week and we're not even done with the week, just a crazy past few days. Not just Iowa, but we also have the continuation of the impeachment trial in the Senate. And so we had the President of the United States giving the State of the Union while he was still being on trial to be impeached, to be removed. And then Trump refusing to shake Nancy Pelosi's hand, and epically Pelosi then ripping up her copy of Trump's speech on national TV, not once, but twice, just in case the cameras in the back didn't catch it in time. That was so awesome. So epic. Uh, so like I said, it's it's been a crazy week, and we're technically not over, so who knows what's to come. So today we're going to talk about the Democratic nomination mm. and the mess that happened on Iowa, and what it all means, and where do we go from here. We're going to be joined today by a very special guest. I'm really excited. Her name is Emmy Ruiz, and she's one of the top political operatives in the country. She ran Hillary Clinton's Nevada operation in 2016, so she can give us a first account of what it's like to compete in one of the early states, and how the results of Iowa and New Hampshire impact a state like Nevada, which votes on Saturday, February 22nd. And since Nevada is a caucus state, we'll ask her if she can shed some light on how things could have gone so, so wrong in Iowa. Yeah, I'm super excited that Emmy can join us. I I really see her as, you know, Exhibit A and what we call the hidden figures in progressive politics, right? While a lot of other operatives get much more media attention, Emmy's been out there winning elections, empowering and elevating a diverse team of organizers and leaders making a really significant uh, impact on national politics. Yeah, like I said, I'm really excited, too. I've been hearing about her for years. Uh, You've talked about her. Others have talked about her. And I can't wait to get into a good conversation with her, especially on the heels of what has happened this week. So we've got a lot of stuff to cover. So let's get started. Uh, Steve, I wanted to first ask you, can you explain... 
can you <laughs> explain how the absence of complete results in Iowa still at this point or the delay in the reporting affects the Democratic race in your view at this point? Yeah, so I think it's important in terms of trying to understand how all this stuff plays out, both Iowa and then the subsequent contests, is that there's two dominant components of the Democratic nomination contest, right? So momentum and math, and they actually follow sequentially. Um, So the first few states, the ones that vote in February, are all about momentum. Can a candidate get a sense of excitement and momentum going? But then the race is going to switch to a mathematical contest for the most delegates, and that's going to happen in March. So historically what's happened is that the winner in Iowa gets momentum, but you go on television, that the Obama clip that we had played, that um, we actually used the quote from that as the opening chapter of the book, right? They said this day would never come. They give this victory speech, captures the attention of the country, they get media coverage, donors start giving money, the person rides that media coverage into New Hampshire, which then builds up their support there. But there were no results on Monday, right? right. Nobody was crowned the winner. Everyone was fighting to rush on the television to give some sort of speech before all the viewers went to bed. So it really robbed all of the participants of much momentum. Definitely. Um, I, and I definitely heard a lot of commentary about that online and just the, the sort of fizzling out of the, the energy and the anticipation and, and, like you said, that momentum. And in terms of I wanted to illustrate how momentum works uh, is that there's – came across a great tweet by a BuzzFeed reporter. Her name is Molly Hensley Clancy. She tweeted out a conversation she had with a voter in New Hampshire the day after the Iowa caucuses. And the conversation, I felt, really perfectly illustrated what you're describing as momentum, um, this this factor, right? Uh, I'll read the tweet. It's, uh, the tweet said, a conversation I just had with a voter at a Pete event in New Hampshire who is deciding between Pete, Warren, and Bloomberg. This, um, she said, it says, Molly says, would it sway your vote if Pete ends up beating Warren in Iowa? Voter, yes, it would. Molly, why? Voter, good question. Huh. So he just, he, and then she ended, she said, he did not have an answer. Yes, so that, that just kind of illustrates, you exactly. know, where, where, how people the, think or don't. <laughs> right. Well, it's the, indefinable dimensions, right, of momentum. It's this, you know, ethereal reality um, that does, uh, is real, certainly in terms of the immediate subsequent contest. And the media plays a big role in conferring momentum on a candidate as well, right? So one of the most famous examples of this, right, was in New Hampshire back in 92, when Bill Clinton was running. He was dogged by all these scandals of extramarital affairs, back when that was a thing, before Trump obliterated all standards around um, personal conduct. Uh, but people thought Clinton was, was mortally wounded, but he just kept slogging it out, trudging on. And then on primary night, he actually lost the election in New Hampshire, coming in second by eight points. But he masterfully worked the media by going on TV early that night and framing the race in his favor. Let me say that while the evening is young and we don't know yet what the final tally will be, I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. 
Yes, I now I remember that. It's interesting to remember how he made that comeback and also just what how masterful he was with the media. And um, definitely good reminder and example. So, Steve, you had said the next other major component of the race and how this all a really influential factor is what you call math. So can you explain that and how that plays out? Yes. So we have to, in the second edition of our book, we have a chapter called Math, Not Myth. And so people don't pay that much attention to math, which is really what is fundamental to all of this. And it really is about counting delegates to get to the number needed to win the nomination. Right. So every state is allocated a certain number of delegates, basically based on its population. Right. So California has 415 delegates. Iowa has just 41. And then what's in New Hampshire on February 11th, there's just 24 delegates. So nationally, there's a total of about 4,000 delegates at stake, and you need to get roughly 2,000 to win. Again, Iowa has just 41. Well, 41. I, I just can't really wrap my head around, and also just realizing how few people realize how few delegates Iowa ha- has, in it, but it has such an outsized influence and impact on the, the race because it's the first state right, to vote. Right, absolutely. And New Hampshire as well. Yeah. So New Hampshire will also have a tremendously outsized influence, 24 delegates at stake. But soon, right, March 3rd, Super Tuesday, California, Texas, 12 other states are going to vote. There's going to be 1,400 delegates at stake. And so that's where you get to the math. How many of those delegates can you accumulate in this race? And the most important and I would say usually overlooked thing about the math is that candidates need to do well with voters of color, and especially black voters because of their geographic distribution in the various states, in order to accumulate large numbers of delegates, right? No Democrat has won the nomination without winning a majority of the black vote since 1988. Yeah, I think that's just definitely a fact that so many people overlook, forget, or probably never realized at all. And I'm still just, I feel like, why didn't we learn this, you know, in school? I feel so, that mm. so many people, even regular people who would say they regularly vote, they feel that they're doing their due diligence as voters, if you were to ask them how does the primary work and what are the number of delegates needed, I mean, I think the vast majority of people would be like, I don't know. I just thought people just vote. It's all been downhill since the end of Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, right? uh, Schoolhouse it. Rock. Love it. So when you, what is, can you explain to me like what it means by the, by the fact that the race shifts from momentum to math? Uh, in March. Right. So right now and in February, if each of these contests, all the attention, all the excitement, all of the interpretation is going to be about who's ahead, who's got momentum, et cetera. And that's all momentum. That's going to be each of these four contests in February, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then um, South Carolina. But in March, when Super Tuesday and then a series of uh, larger states, number of them heavily people of color, heavily black vote, that's when math takes takes over. And so that's what happened in 2008, is that after, when the dust settled in mid-March, after Super Tuesday, after a slew of races, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Maryland, Virginia, Obama was ahead. And he had like a 125 delegate lead, which was insurmountable for the rest of the race. And the same thing happened in 2016, right? So Clinton won narrowly Iowa, Bernie won big in uh, New Hampshire, Clinton won, uh, more accurately, Emmy Ruiz helped Clinton win Nevada in 2016, and then they had the big Super Tuesday. When that dust all settled, Clinton was ahead in the math and the delegate count with an insurmountable lead. 
And so that's where we stop looking at momentum from individual states to just counting who has the most delegates and what's going to be, uh, who's in the best position to, to get to the 2,000 that you need to win the contest. Really interesting. And I know that you and I had just talked earlier about the fact that what does make this year's primary cycle different and interesting and a, a lot of unknown factors is that there are more candidates. Right. And so how is that going to play out or make things really different than we've seen in the past? As we are seeing already, it's very different than other primary races in the past. Okay, so let's dive deeper into what happened in Iowa this week and what happens next in this race. To help us with that, we're going to bring in now our very special guest who has been in the trenches of these battles and has great amount of experience and insight We're really happy to introduce today and bring on Emmy Ruiz. Emmy Ruiz is a Democratic strategist who has focused her career on empowering younger voters, Latinos and women and girls. She's built many winning campaigns by focusing on voter registration and mobilization, particularly in communities of color. And in 2012, she served as the Nevada General Election Director for Obama for America. And in 2016, she was Hillary's state director in Nevada and Colorado in the primaries, and then oversaw Hillary's general election efforts in Colorado, with Hillary winning that state with a 5% margin of victory. And currently, uh, Emmy is the co-founder of NUCO, a majority LGBTQ and majority women-owned political consulting firm. Emmy lives in Austin, Texas with her wife, and she is a new mom to Henry. So hi, Emmy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlene. Thanks for having me and uh, for that kind introduction. And hi, Steve. Hi, Emmy. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Of course. You know, when I agreed to it, I had no idea what would happen on Monday. Nobody did. And here we are. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's one of those, I just feel like we're living in these times where it's like the box of chocolate. You you wake up and or you look at your phone, you look away from your phone and you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. It's um, it's never a dull moment. So, Emmy, I wanted to start off by asking, in your own words, from your perspective, what happened with the meltdown this week in Iowa? I know you've participated in caucuses before. And can you explain, help us understand what you saw as like where things went wrong? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, to go off of your box of chocolates example, <laughs> you know, the the place we're living in politics right now is completely unpredictable. Um, in some of the projects that I work with, I often say we need a plan for wild, for unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And just remember where we were four years ago, where we could have never imagined what would happen. Remember where we were at the inauguration, where we never could have imagined what has happened. Right. And even in preparing for the unpredictable, I don't know that there are many people who would have predicted what happened on Monday happened. Right. No. And so, you know, I'll start by saying caucuses, I think everyone agrees they got to go. So I'll just <laughs> get that out of the way. I will also say that, you know, I have a very special place in my heart for the Nevada caucus. I think that It has been critical in laying the groundwork for a Democratic majority in Nevada, for voter registration numbers, for engagement. But caucuses, even at their best, although well-intentioned, are very disenfranchising. And so that in itself is a reason enough to change it up. But so Monday, 
like I'll also say this before I go into I think some of uh, the details of what we saw is that they require a lot of work and it's right now we are in this phase where of course people are very upset they're very concerned about what happened but there are a lot of really 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 great people volunteers party activists party For leaders sure. yeah. uh, who went into doing their best with the intention of doing their best and ensuring that all caucus goers were represented and whatnot and so you know, I think what happened in the meltdown of Iowa was a few things, at least from what we've seen reported. One is that the reporting was not happening accurately. And and what that means is not that the wrong numbers were coming in. It's that the information was not flowing from the app to the reporting center. And so in an effort to ensure and demand the accuracy of the results, my impression is that that stalled a lot of people. There was a crisis of communication. There was a crisis of maybe even paralysis. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough place to be, especially when you have uh, the eyes of the world on you. And that's truly what was happening. I mean, if we would have had this conversation a week ago, I think most of us would have predicted very, very high turnout, a strong show of support for Senator Sanders. And so when people have these expectations of what they're going to see, and then there is nothing. And now what we're looking at is think, uh, what are we at? 63% reported now, yes. 48 hours later. Right. I mean, that's not much better. Right. And so usually where we see in Iowa is, it, Steve, you mentioned this earlier, it's not a game for delegates at the moment. It's a game for energy, for momentum, for media coverage, for enthusiasm. I'm not sure that very many of them are getting that right now. Right. So what, how did it, just mechanically, how did it work in Nevada that, because right, basically it's, there's caucuses all over, certainly in Iowa, all over the state. They get their numbers around how people had done, and they're trying to get them into the head, headquarters to tabulate them. And then that's where the app <coughs> malfunctioned and perhaps never functioned. But in 2016, how did they get the information into headquarters, and how did that, fun- how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you both the state party perspective and the campaign perspective, right? So the state party perspective, this is work that goes in around the clock for more than a year, right? They're working with Great Democratic National Committee, with the Rules and Bylaws Committee to ensure that their process is not just lawful, but it is accessible for all, all prospective participants and whatnot. And so the way that it usually works is that you identify precinct leaders for every precinct. And so immediately at the start of it, you know, you go through party business, you might read a letter, you might do this or that. And then that precinct chair is elected um, and essentially authorized by the caucus goers to count, to lead, to set the delegate numbers. And then that person, one one is documenting everything on paper, two, is then reporting out the results, right? And usually there are people that are helping. So it's not just, you know, they count everyone, then they go into a room, they come out and tell everyone what the results are. Part of what is appealing about a caucus in theory is that it's incredibly transparent. You see where everyone is. Uh, You have a real-time ability to ensure that your vote is going that extra mile because you get to change it, right? You get to say, well, I could be the difference of a delegate for this group versus that group. And I'm going to make sure that I make my voice heard in that sense. And so they do a few things to report it. In some cases, there is an app, but you have to also keep in mind, who are these volunteers? Who are these likely precinct chairs that are running these caucuses? They are 
usually um, older volunteers. They are people that don't always have smartphones. Uh, they are people who might not be as familiar with technology as those of us on this podcast. And also, that's that's in the best case scenario, right? I mean, how many times have we been in a high school gym and you don't have any service? And right. so yeah, no, what the party the... usually does, and certainly in Nevada where they have an incredibly strong Democratic Party, mm-hmm. is they have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Mm-hmm. So they have one dial in and report numbers. Two, then they also have sites. So at one site, you might also have multiple precincts. It might just be anywhere up to 10 precincts. So you're also streamlining reporting. And then they have a timeline to ensure that they're getting all of the paperwork in to the county parties and to the state party so that they can get ready for the convention. So essentially, they're sharing that information uh, with one another so that they're following up on the delegate process. So it's been reported that Nevada has also purchased the same app. Do you do you anticipate they're going to have similar problems, or do you think they'll be able to pull it off better? I think they'll be able to pull it off better. I mean, look, I think part of the benefit of going two weeks later is having a real-time opportunity to adjust wherever you need to. I will tell you, I, I do believe that the Nevada State Democratic Party has always been very, very strong, and I think they, they will be prepared. I mean, the other thing to note about Iowa and Nevada and some of these other caucus states this year is that they're all working really hard to make it more accessible and more transparent. So for the first time ever, Nevada is actually going to have early vote during the caucus. If somebody can't make it that Saturday morning, they can swing by during some dates and, and times and go drop off their vote. And that will be all across the state and labor union halls and places of worship, and libraries. So any challenges that arise, they truly will be able to fix them in real time without, you know, the eyes of the world. Right. Stuck right. to glued to Twitter, figuring yeah, out what happened. Exactly. Refreshing. Yeah. There's a couple other points about this whole thing that I think are being overlooked that I did want to um, highlight for, for our listeners. Right. And so first is that fundamentally, and this is coming from somebody who lives in and has lived in Silicon Valley my whole adult life and went to college with a lot of these people who created these companies, this is more a Silicon Valley failure than an Iowa Democratic Party failure. Right? This is a brand new, apparently untested or undertested, fancy app developed by this company called Shadow, a new company, which was created by another new tech startup called Acronym, that's backed by a lot of the Silicon Valley heavyweights. And it's really part of this Silicon Valley hubris, that they're smarter than everybody and tech will cure everything. And I remember I went to this, um, in 2009, I went to uh, the former head of uh, Yahoo, held a, well, what normal people would call a sal- uh, salon. They called it a salon, L-A-W-N, because it was on his lawn. And there was somebody who was going from, like, one of these tech companies to work in the Obama administration, you could just see the mindset was that they're going to create these apps that are going to solve all of the problems. And I remember thinking, what's the app to solve racism, right? But there's just so much sense of hubris from the people who have been successful, and many of them successful because they were actually lucky. Not that they were actually so brilliant, right? There's this great ad they used to have in the Santa Fe Mercury News ran during the dot-com crash. said, you used to be a 28-year-old millionaire. Now you're just 28, Right. But still, there's this mindset. And this is what this guy who created this company, Shadow, is this interviews with him saying, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, technology was terrible and I'm going to go solve it. And so that 
is you know clear manifestation, I think, of the Silicon Valley mindset, which then went in and really messed up the whole Iowa thing. The second, and I think really unappreciated part of this, is that it exposes the dirty secret of how Democrats spend their money. And fundamentally, it makes the Democratic Party more, less effective in its work. And so, yes, this tech company messed up, all those different problems with that. But the bigger question is, how do they get chosen in the first place? Democratic Party has, like, no standards or protocols for awarding contracts and spending money. And I've been on this for, like, six or seven years. We did the first ever audit of Democratic Party spending back in 2014, the Fannie Lou Hamer report um, by Power Pack Plus. We found that out of $500 million spent by Democrats, 97% of the contracts went to white contractors. And that's because there's no transparency. There's no announcements that a contract is up. There's no way to be able to try to somebody to compete to become part of it. And it's like almost like a literal backroom deal situation in an old boys club where people are giving out contracts to their friends. And that's how we got to this situation. And that's what's really been, I think, exposed by all this. So really, on that front, I do want you to, I want to ask you, Emmy, that you staffed up in, well, both Nevada and Colorado, built up a team, you had a staff, yours was extremely diverse. How did you go about doing that? What was, what were the steps or what was the process for you to find people and build out your team of people who you used to, to win the Colorado and Nevada elections? Well, you know, the reason I say is I'm very nostalgic for that time. You know, I was very lucky to be a part of an incredible team in Colorado that was one, number one, the best, Mm -hmm. Uh, the best team, one, the best team to put together and lead Colorado two, And we're incredibly diverse people, uh, majority women. And, you know, what I'm proud of is that that wasn't just in the headquarters. It was across the board. And I like to throw in for extra fun is that it was also about 20 percent Texan, (laughs) which I'm pretty proud of in Colorado. And so, like, I think one of the things that has really evolved and Steve, you probably know this better than anyone over the last few years is this demand for diversity and inclusion. And I would also add an additional component of a values led culture in our work. And I think that this culture piece, I think, is a big part of what's happening and some of the pushback on the software that was used, too, uh, in the approach of how it was rolled out. And to your point of, you know, you don't know how to do this. This is the only way to do it. That is not people-based and people-focused. And so I will tell you, I tried to live out a few different values. One is ensure, as state director of Colorado for Hillary Clinton, my number one goal was to win. And to me, the first and most critical component of that was putting together a group of people that would be able to accomplish that goal. And so I try to do a few things. One is I always sought out to hire the best person. But a lot of times when we are hiring people, we are just thinking inside the box of these five resumes that came across my desk versus transferable skills versus what is a job that really needs to get done and how quickly can somebody learn? And so looking outside of traditional areas and I I feel like we were able to do that in a few ways. And so the vast majority of my team, I think our senior staff was a team of about 13 and I believe it was 11 or 10 people of color, 11 women out of those 13. And so, you know, we used to joke, are we ever going to hire that first man? We really need that diversity. (laughs) But really 
I was focused on building the best team, right? And then together we outlined our values and what did we want our teams to look like? What did they want? What did we want us to reflect? But always in that same vein of what it was going to take to win. And I think a lot of times when we talk about diversity, when we talk about values, when we talk about inclusion in our work, People treat it as a secondary priority. Oh, that's really great. No, for sure. We need to try. Well, it is actually tied to winning. Exactly. It is tied to building the pipeline. It is tied to ensuring that we have these critical voices that we need to persuade, that we need to engage, that we need to turn out in the room. And so that's what we try to do. So you're saying that you you would have loved to hire straight white guys, you just couldn't find any. Is it good problems to have? You know what? I didn't hire the first straight white guy, poor Jake. Uh, until I think September of 2020, <laughs> he was our GOTV director. He's a good friend of mine. Where it actually ended up marrying him and his wife a few months ago. But and he's awesome. I mean, we love him so much. But yes, some of our best yeah. friends are straight white guys. Yes, yeah. I wanted to jump in here and talk about where the race is at right now and where do we go from here. So again, it looks like Sanders and Buttigieg like we had mentioned, are going to come out on top in Iowa, top two, and the New Hampshire primary is February 11th. So, Emmy, I was wondering, how do you assess the race at this point? You know, I I know that's a broad question, but just from what you're seeing in terms of like with Sanders and Buttigieg being coming out on top in Iowa and moving forward. You know, I keep contradicting myself and what I'm about to say. And so I'll give you my different frames of thinking. I'll tell you, I still think it's a jump ball. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who came out of Iowa winning, in my opinion, or at least not losing, right? At a Mm -hmm. certain point, I think there were so many high expectations that some campaigns were given another day of life uh, and others were able to really run with some energy. You know, for example, I saw on Twitter yesterday that uh, Mayor Pete had his best hour of fundraising or most website traffic or something of the sort. I think going into New Hampshire is that I think it's a jump ball, right? I think it could be Bernie. I think it could be Pete. And I also am seeing a lot of energy for Amy in New Hampshire. Mm, really? And so, you know, yeah, I mean, I just feel, I actually felt like it was a good night for Amy Klobuchar. Mm. I mean, she came in within the margin of error of Vice President Biden. <laughs> right. And and the difference, the advantage that Senator Klobuchar has that none of these other candidates have is that she has been running, in my opinion, a lean campaign. Right. She you don't hear about her having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and in some cases thousands of staff. So she is not wedded to having to raise as much money on the daily. So a little bump for her could go a long way. So I think New Hampshire probably, I I think the odds are in Pete or Bernie's favor, but anything could happen and we have a debate on Friday, right? right? I mean, that in itself could be an advantage for somebody that the debate is on Friday on a night that people are probably not as likely to be plugged in. Hmm. What do y'all think? Well, I I, I think you're right. I mean, New Hampshire traditionally has been very unpredictable. Um, and also subject to, you know, either momentum, the winds of change, et cetera, et cetera. So certainly seems like Bernie's going to be core strong. I could see Pete surging there. But the bigger question to me, right, the importance of both of these white states is that they set up what's going to happen in the diverse states, right? And so that's really what we saw in 08 and 2016. And so that's where I feel like I don't see a path for Pete or Amy post New Hampshire. 
And there, then the bigger question to me is how strong or weak is Biden going to be coming out of these uh, places? And then can Bernie expand his support um, among black voters from the younger voters who supported him to the broader piece? So that's kind of my how I'm looking at what's going to happen. I don't, I, you know, I don't even pretend to predict New Hampshire itself. But then what happens next is um, really what the, Biden is the biggest variable. Right. He? Yeah. Like I keep thinking. As black voters are watching what's happening this week, A, they're probably like, oh, what's going on with all these, this caucus and between these white candidates who are left as the top candidates. But I'm wondering where the black voters will go from here and if any of them are thinking, contemplating between different candidates. Yeah, well, I think Biden entered with strong support in two fronts, right? That people do feel affection for him from being Obama's vice president, and they thought this was their best chance to get white voters to vote for the Democratic nominee. Does that persist through a series of bad losses is what the big question Mm -hmm. is there. I mean, Bernie does do well. Bernie gets the majority of younger African-Americans and younger Latinos, but that's not the dominant part, at least in that black community, the dominant part of the community. So can he expand beyond that? And I actually think that Warren has a very high upside, that she is, she gets the issues, she can communicate well, she can engage the community, but she's got to have some evidence of viability um, and think people to actually take her seriously. And I do think the other big variable is Bloomberg. And I, I mean, it's been a ton, yeah. you know, a ton of black mayors have come out for him. He's, been, he's announced he's hiring 2,000 staff people across the country. Talk he, about the unknown factor. Like we were saying before totally. about how we're in a new norm. Like there's... The, the new norm is like nobody knows. <laughs> like what? Right. I remember. So I saw, for example, a tweet the other day. You know who had the best night of Iowa? <laughs> Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> There's some truth to that. There's some truth. I mean, Biden had a good night too because he had a bad night, but then nobody knew it. <laughs> so I think that the delay, oh, right. you know, helped him in that regard. Um, but yeah, no, we've never seen anything like this before. I, mean, I remember in 2004 when John Edwards raised. $7 million, people thought that was a ton of money. Bloomberg's talking about spending a billion. Um, so I definitely think that that's going to be an unknown variable. And if people want a strong white guy and Biden is weak, Bloomberg might be the candidate. I mean, so Nevada is coming up shortly after um, uh, New Hampshire. So what, from having run and won New, uh, Nevada, what does it take to win there? And what do you see it looking like in terms of the current status of the race? Yeah, I mean, you have to have an organization. You have to, you cannot get away um, without having that. I mean, I'll tell you, I think in 2016, if Senator Sanders had built up his organization earlier, I mean, he definitely, don't get me wrong, he had probably two, three, maybe even four times the amount of staff we did at the end. Um, It would have put him in a more competitive position, right? You have to have to have staff uh, for turnout. I think there are a few things uh, to keep an eye on in the next few weeks. One, and, and this is not in priority order, but certainly I think all of these will carry some weight. One is, does a culinary union endorse anyone? That will have a tremendous impact. They're an incredibly strong union. Um, there will be early caucus slash vote sites on the strip, um, as well as in their union hall. Um, and so that will be a, a big uh big mover uh, for anyone if they decide to jump in. Um, They are the largest union in the state and are incredibly 
organized and well known for being so. What do you think? Two is, I don't know. I mean, I, I I couldn't speak to it. I mean, I think they care a lot about immigration. They care a lot about healthcare and others, and and so they have been having town halls. Um, I want to believe that if Senator Harris was still in the race, I think she would probably be the strongest contender. And so, you know, they they really do their homework, and it will come down to their membership and, and where they land if they decide to jump in. Okay. The second, um, you're saying? second, I would say early vote and the impact of that. And so, are people able um, to turn out their supporters in advance? And so, that will be a big opportunity. Um, third. Look, we have to see an increase of turnout across the board. I mean, that's right. one thing that we're not spending enough time talking about it, uh, from Iowa is that turnout was not much higher than 2016. Yep. And so that's something that we really need to take a close eye on. I mean, maybe that's a fluke. Maybe all the numbers aren't in yet. You know, there's a lot of variables there. So I don't want to get crazy just yet. Um, but we need to make sure of that because that's also a real big opportunity for voter registration in a state like Nevada and also Iowa and whatnot. Um, so it's turnout and then caucus day. I mean, caucus day is tough. I mean, you got to be organized. You got to be ready. You have to have precinct captains and volunteer leadership, uh, at every single caucus site. And there tends to be about 200 and that's not easy to do in a state like Nevada. And especially not when you're competing, uh, for resources with the other presidential campaigns, as well as the state party, who's also looking to fill those gaps. I think Bernie has a very strong organization in Nevada. Um, I think Vice President Biden has some naturally built-in advantages um, with, in particular, communities of color. And so this will be the first real test of that. Although, you know, some of the preliminary findings in Iowa were that communities of color, um, at least in some of these heavily, um, heavily populated precincts, were very favorable to Senator Sanders. But also, I have to tell you, I think uh, Warren has a great operation there as well, and I think Mayor Pete could do well. So I think the jump ball continues in Nevada. I know, I know, it's not... Look, if Bernie would have won Iowa with an exclamation mark the way I thought he was going to a week ago, I think he would have won New Hampshire with an exclamation mark, and I think he would have won Nevada. Interesting. We will uh, tune in and... It all remains but, to be seen. But let me give you the biggest predictor. I do think we'll have results out of Nevada. How about that? <laughs> all right. We'll uh, need to check in with you. <laughs> yeah, I'll need to, to see that. how that plays out. Hold you to that. Um, so we're yeah. going to wrap up here. And Emmy, we'd love uh, for you to stay on. Uh, we're going, we usually end with a fun final question. And today's question, again, these are, you know, supposed to be fun, quick answers. I came up with this question because I found myself with all the chaos thinking, I need a vacation, even though it's like only the beginning of February. So I was curious, what's a memorable family trip that you've taken? It can be from your childhood or more recently, uh, just real briefly. Um, oh, this is great. This is from a month ago. Um, my family, my wife, my son and I, who's two, who just turned two, went to Maui oh, wow. for a week. Nice. And my favorite thing about that is, well, I don't know if you can call it a vacation. They say when you have kids, they're not vacations anymore. They're trips. I hear you. you take trips. Sister. <laughs> and so we took a trip. <laughs> I came back a little more tired than when I left. But I just loved seeing the world through his eyes. Yeah. I mean, the other day we were like asking him if he wanted to go to the park and he said baby beach 
You know what I mean? So he remembers things and I cannot wait to take him to the beach again. In fact, I have a work trip to Florida in a few weeks and I'm going to take him with me. And my wife is like, are you sure? Why don't we just leave? I'm like, no, he, we have to continue to take him to baby beach. Um, and so, you know, that was really sweet and special is being able to experience something through his eyes. Yeah, no, that's true too. Steve? I think Emmy will appreciate mine. It was, I think it was our fifth wedding anniversary. We wound up going to New Braunfels, Texas. Which oh is... my God, Steve, why? <laughs> I'm just kidding, Texas listeners. I love New Braunfels, Germantown. Because of the inner tubes. So there's this big oh God, river yeah. thing and you rent an inner tube and it's like you go down, it's like a whole event thingy. And so it's me and my wife and my nephew and my brother. And it was just this really very enjoyable family experience on those inner tube thingies um, near New Braunfels. Nice, that's my first time hearing your story there. That sounds really great. Uh, mine was last spring, my husband, myself and my daughter, we went to China to visit um, my father's family there and and got to visit where my father, the town where my father was born and raised. And like you had said, Emmy, it was totally not actually relaxing. I was exhausted, but to get to share that experience with my daughter was, um, you know, once in a lifetime. So that was super special to me. That's really awesome. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. We'd like to thank our special guest, Emmy Ruiz. Thank you all so much. You can follow Emmy on Twitter, where her handle is at Emmy Ruiz. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded at the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.